Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. The scripture reading for today is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Verses 1 through 19. You may locate these texts in your Pew Bible on page 332. First, let us prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Startle us, O God. Startle us out of our everyday routine and into your presence. Startle us with your Word of grace and open our hearts so that we may receive it. Amen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life? that this man says word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one count. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, And I bow down in the house of Rimmon. When I do bow down in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. He said to him, Go in peace. 
the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So every couple of years, I have us revisit this story of Naaman, the Syrian general. I think it's one of the more important stories in the Bible. Naaman is an interesting guy. He's a man of power and of success, a successful general in the Syrian army, but he has a skin disease and through an odd collection of circumstances, finds himself standing in the driveway of the prophet Elisha, seeking healing. And Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. He sends a messenger and says, go wash in the Jordan, you'll be fine. Naaman's response is one of anger. He feels belittled. He said, I thought for me he would come out and call on the name of the Lord, sprinkle some wiffle dust, say Shazam a time or two, and bring healing. And besides, what's with the Jordan? We've got better rivers back in Damascus. His servant said, look, if he asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. Give it a try. And in a way I can't explain, Naaman washes in the Jordan and receives healing. And for many readers of the story, it ends there. But the story actually continues. And if I understand the text, this is where the story becomes important. Because it becomes clear that Naaman's healing does not solve the problems of his life. As a matter of fact, his healing complicates his life. But because before he is healed, he refers to God as your God speaking to Elisha. But now he's my God. Now I am one who's experienced grace in my life. And Naaman, Naaman endeavors to be faithful to God, but he has a problem. He's going back to Syria, and they do not share his conviction. They do not share his faith or values. He says, now I know there is no God in all the earth except the God of Israel. But in Syria, there's the God Rimmon, and it's complicated for Naaman. And he knows that from this time forward, his life will be something of a compromise, a mixed bag of faithfulness and failure, because the world in which he lives does not all align with his faith, and there are going to be times when he finds himself lonely in his fidelity to God. And so he asks Elijah, will God pardon me? when I stumble. Will God pardon me in my endeavor to be faithful? Will God pardon me when I fail? For I know that my life will be compromised. And Elisha says, go in peace. I love this story of name and I value it because it names for us how messy and complicated life is. It is seldom pure and clear. It's almost always complicated and messy. 
So she said to me, she said, everything's going to be perfect. Every detail has been addressed. Everything is going to be perfect. She was referring to the wedding of her daughter. I was new enough in ministry that I didn't realize I was already in trouble. (laughs) She had spent most every waking moment of the previous year preparing for this brief afternoon. She wanted everything to be just as it should be. She loved her daughter, and she wanted it to be perfect, and with regard to the things that she could control, and they were considerable, they were perfect. It was set in a grove of azaleas. Lines of white wooden chairs stood at attention. Hurricane lanterns marked the entrance. Magnolia blossoms tied to the end of each row of chairs and scattered down the aisle. A string quartet played Pachelbel. It was stunning, and to me it seemed perfect. We were about to begin when I noticed, even in my robe, I noticed the temperature dropped. And then raindrops started falling like water balloons. And then it was as a heavenly fire truck turned its hose toward our little azalea garden, and the deluge began. We raced to cars to get cover in the, in the haste. We did not bother getting our own cars. Just any car will do. In a strategic error on my part, I ended up in the back seat, and in the front seat was the mother of the bride. (laughs) With heartbreak, she looked through the window and watched pools of water began to form in the little white chairs, and then the hail came, and like sniper fire began to pick off hurricane lanterns and magnolia blossoms. And with heartbreak and a little anger, she turned and looked at me and said, Can't you do anything about this? I said, No, ma'am, this is a management decision. I'm, I'm just public relations. What I wanted to say is, Yeah, but I'm not gonna. She said, well, it's all just ruined now. It's all just ruined. I grabbed her hand, and I said, let's wait. It'll be okay. It wasn't the day any of them had planned for, but the rain passed, and we stepped out. Nobody sat in the chairs, but it was a brief service. And by dinner time, they were married. But the thing is about weddings, things don't always go as planned. More importantly, things don't always go as planned in marriages either, or in parenting, or at work, or in friendships, or in being church together. Sometimes our train jumps the track. Life is messy and complicated And when it gets that way, it can sometimes be hard for us to be our best self. When things have kind of fallen apart around us, it can sometimes be hard to be our best self. And to do so, it might require some courage. 
been talking about character for a few weeks, and I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I've been instructed by David Brooks' reflection that there's a difference between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Do you remember me sharing that with you? Brooks defines resume virtues as those skills and characteristics that we develop that help us be successful in life. They're important. These are the virtues that we hone to be good at our job, to succeed in life, to make a mark in the world, at least professionally. But he says eulogy virtues are of a completely different nature. They're not about your success. As a matter of fact, with these, you might not win. But they're about the nature of your relationships. I suppose I resonate with Brooks's analysis because I get to hear a lot of recitation of eulogy virtues. Three times this week, some of you carry with fragile hearts. You came to this room with a need to recite one more time, the Lord is my shepherd, with a need to sing one more time, abide with me, a need to hear one more time the promise of the resurrection. So many of you know exactly what that moment is like. And what we do in that moment is we remember, and Brooks is right, what we remember in those moments are not first success or award or accomplishment. What we remember in that moment is love. The eulogy virtues speak not to what we have done, but to who and how we have been with each other. And so here's the tension, and maybe you see this differently than I do, but this is, this is how I see it. We, we live in a culture that prioritizes the resume virtues, the success, the accomplishment. And it doesn't hold a lot of confidence in the love that we practice in life. Our culture tells us we are competitors. Our culture tells us we need to win, and every problem is something we should fix so that we can create a perfect life. But I just don't think that life exists. And so I think when life is messy and complicated, to stay true to your faith, to stay true to love, to prioritize relationships, it's hard and it can require some courage. And I I don't know if you think of yourself as courageous or not, but, but I think courage is sometimes something that others see in us even when we don't see it in ourselves. It, it's a little bit like patience in that way. I don't, I don't know if you're a patient person, but me, not. I'm not patient. I stop at the red light and the car's not coming the other way. I'm like, what is this for? If, 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 it's, if it's the last day of March and the snow is still falling, I am impatient, all right? If, if I go to the coffee, coffee shop and I want the blonde roast and I can only get that through pour over, that's like set my week back. And, and so when it comes to patience, I'm not a patient person. But here's the thing, even I, can practice patience sometimes. 
Because patience is not something we feel. It's a way we treat others. And the irony is that when we are practicing patience, we are probably feeling what? Impatience. I think courage is a little bit like that. We don't always feel courageous, but we can choose courage when we choose the good, even when life is a mess. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives testimony to this dynamic. He was a pastor captured in World War II, placed in Tegel prison camp. He was executed just days before Allied forces liberated his camp. While he was there, he wrote a lot, some sermons, some theological reflections, lots of letters and some poems. And one of my favorite poems from prison is entitled, Who Am I? Just a few lines. Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They tell me I would speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equitably smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which others tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness and neighborliness. Who am I? I love the honesty of Bonhoeffer's confession. He felt weak and needy, but others saw in him inspiration and courage. I think courage is like that sometimes. And I think that's what Naaman is pointing to. For to live faithful to God in a culture that questions the power of love. I mean, sometimes you feel lonely. Out of sync with cultural wisdom. And it requires courage. And Naaman knows that in his own life it will be a compromise because life is messy. On September 30th, 1982, a news story broke, and by some reports, it was the most widely covered story in over 15 years. Seven people in Chicago died from contamination of Tylenol. Overnight, Johnson & Johnson, the company that distributed the medicine, became a company that was distributing poison as caplets, uh, capsules of extra-strength Tylenol had been laced with cyanide. 
Within a few days, James Burke, the president of Johnson & Johnson, flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with representatives of the FDA and of the FBI. They advised him that Tylenol should be recalled in the Chicago area where the deaths had occurred. But they advised him not to do more than that as to avoid creating panic in the nation. Burke evidently ignored the advice. And at greater cost to his company, he ordered a nationwide recall costing Johnson & Johnson over $100 million. Daniel Coyle, in writing about this occasion, says, over the next days and weeks, Johnson & Johnson essentially transformed itself from a pharmaceutical company into a public safety organization. Within six weeks, they redesigned their packaging and introduced that tamper-free safety packaging that is omnipresent now. When asked why they responded so aggressively to this crisis, Burke said, it was our duty. Our first obligation is to the people we serve. Now, I don't know. I don't know if that's the choice in every boardroom, but I find it courageous to place people first. Now, it worked for Johnson & Johnson. It worked out well for them. But the thing about character, it's what you choose when you don't know how it's going to work out. It's what you choose when you are not in control. It's what you choose when you don't know if you will win or not. And because of that, when things go wrong, when life gets messy, there's a temptation be drawn to the lower road, and the high road feels riskier. In Robert Dugoni's novel, The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hill, Sam Hill is born with ocular albinism. His eyes were red. As a result, Sam lived his life knowing what it is like to never fit in. It is a common story for young people in one fashion or another to know what it is like to never fit in. In school, he was bullied terribly, both by students and by unenlightened administrators. He was a bright kid, and at the end of high school, he had the best GPA of his class. He expected to be recognized as valedictorian and to give the valedictorian address. But the board of trustees at his school had trouble imagining a guy with red eyes giving that speech. So instead, they recognized Sam's best friend, Ernie, a popular kid, but one who was not nearly the student as Sam. That night at dinner, Sam told his parents what had happened. It's not me. They chose Ernie. He said he was fine about it, but he wasn't. Sam's dad, Max, said, I'm proud of you. And when we finish dinner, we should call Ernie and congratulate him. He's your friend, and this is a big day for him. But Sam's mother lost it. 
After 18 years of fighting for her child, this was the last straw. It broke her heart that once again her child was treated unfairly. No, this is not okay, she said, crying tears of anger. She said, those members of the board are cowards. They are all cowards. Max, trying to calm things, said, let's not be ungracious, dear. To which she responded, why not? Everybody else is. It feels that way too often, doesn't it? That we're living in a world devoid of grace. That we're living in a world that is suspicious of the power of love. That we live in a world of hostility. A world that seems to celebrate our divisions over one another. A world that has wandered far from the teaching of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, when we want to be faithful to that teaching, it can feel lonely. Like what you know to be true feels out of sync with the world around us. And to maintain fidelity is, takes courage. At the end of the day, it's often a compromise. And I imagine it'll happen to you this week. Messiness or ugliness or entitlement will abound. When it does, do your best not to be ungracious. Do your best to choose love. Do your best to prioritize relationship may not win, but it will matter. And if you do, remember the promise of the prophet and go in peace. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.